Chapter Eleven of A Yellow Journalist by Miriam Michelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Act of a Thug, which Miss Massey committed. A fantastic fiancé I seemed to myself in those days, ordering a dream trousseau. Sweet Sister Euphrosine pitied me, thinking me promised to a man I couldn't love. I wondered what she'd have thought if she had known I hadn't any bridegroom at all. It's strange, though, isn't it, how sentiment finds one out? I tried to think of all that elaborate planning of clothes, of my frequent journeyings out to the convent, of the fittings, the consultations, as merely the outside of a story I was working on. But all the time I was conscious of the real story, the story of which these things are the evidence. No, no, you can't touch the symbols that move the world without feeling all the emotion the race has felt before you. You're a ninny, Rhoda Massey, I railed at myself. The thing's a farce, and it hasn't any significance anyway. If you don't get this dream bee out of your bonnet, you'll lose your chance for that letter as well as all the pennies you're squandering on nonsense. But just the same, there were times when I loved it, and dreamed, as I stood before the nun dressmaker in the filmy prettiness of my wedding gown, that it was not a dream trousseau, but a real one, meant to begin a new but a very real life with, with Ted, my dear, dear Ted, dreamed that I was sweet and honest and merciful, fit to wear the white of womanliness, fit to shine out before him in my beauty. Oh, yes, really I was beautiful. I didn't know it before. But you couldn't help being lovely when Sister Euphrosine's fingers and her fancy took possession of you. If he'd really cared the littlest bit for you, Rhoda, it came to me one morning while I was looking at some lace in a big department shop, he'd have found some way to excuse you to himself before this. He'd have given you a chance to tell him you were sorry and ashamed and— You say it's for a wedding gown, Miss Massey? interrupted the clerk cheekily. Yes, but not— I was going to say not mine, and was trying not to blush so brightly, but I didn't say a word, for I looked up just then and— and met Ted Thompson's eyes. He had heard. Oh, yes, he had heard, for he stood there as though transfixed, quite deaf to the floor-walker who was directing him to another counter for the traveling bag he'd asked for. I put out my hand. I couldn't help it. The sight of him set the sun to shining and scattered all the fog of misery from my sky. But he made no motion to take it, only raised his hat stiffly and passed on. I, I think I'll take this, I said to the clerk. I pointed to the wrong pattern, of course. But what difference did it make? I couldn't tell one from the other just at that moment. All I could see was Ted's wrathful, incredulous, suffering, adoring, yes, adoring face. "'Miss Massey!' I exclaimed inside of me, smiling upon the clerk as he handed me the package, in a way that bewildered and excited him. "'Oh, Miss Massey, you lucky, lucky Miss Massey!' I was still smiling with the joy of it when I caught a westbound car and when Sister Euphrosine came into the fitting-room with her arms full of white fleeciness still nearer completion, I gave a rapturous squeal. Oh, if one could heal all the hurt in the world! 
It wouldn't be enough to earn the right to wear that wedding gown of mine and choose the bridegroom. I slipped into it, and that nun artist put her two hands upon my shoulders as I stood smiling at all the world. It is... You will forgive me, but you know I care, little miss. The trouble is past. She whispered, her clear eyes smiling into mine. I nodded. I couldn't speak. I was so happy, and my heart was so full. She hugged me then. Oh, but carefully, for she loved the crisp curves of my sleeves too well to risk mussing them. My dear little mademoiselle, I am so glad, so glad. Excuse me, then, a moment. And with the lace in her hand with which she had been draping my sleeves, she walked over to a telephone standing on the corner table. Call Mr. Sabatier to the telephone, she said after she had got the number. Not there. Well, tell him he can send for that letter immediately. What is it? Oh, I cannot understand. Do you say he is just coming in or has just gone out? Oh, all right. I will hold the telephone. I had been standing in front of a long glass, looking at my happy self and loving the very sight of me. Why? Oh, just because I knew Ted Thompson's eyes would rest on that little girlish brighty thing shining out of the mirror some day, and I was grateful to her for being worth looking at. There. Conceited if you say so, but true just the same. But the picture in the glass melted away with Sister Euphrosine's words. Like a flash, the youth went out of the face and figure and all the happiness, and in its place there seemed to be a white-haired, sad-faced little old lady whose accusing, miserable eyes looked out at me reproaching me for her misery. "'How dare you be happy?' she seemed to say. "'How can you smile and be glad, you selfish, cruel girl?' And trembling, I looked back at her and knew I couldn't. I couldn't. "'You are tired. Oh, pardon me,' Sister Euphrosine said when she got through chattering French and came back to me. "'You are not very strong, are you? I should not have kept you waiting. But that same letter of which we have spoken has been demanded of me. I told the person that it was not quite convenient to let him have it this morning. I wanted to see you first, mademoiselle. But now—' there. It is perfection, is it not? She had been deftly shaping the lace at my neck. The while she talked in a preoccupied way, hardly conscious of what she said, so absorbed was she in her work. Ah, but you will look sweet and dainty for him, child, but pale. She pinched my cheek affectionately. I smiled back at her. I knew she liked me. How could she help it when I was so fond of her? Yes, truly, genuinely fond. But I wished I wasn't, I wished I wasn't, for every scheme that came into my head ran plump against something intangible yet insurmountable. A tone of her voice, a look of her eye, the placid fall of the black lines of the robe she wore and never for an instant thought of changing for the silk and lace draperies her big, capable hands used so artistically. But I fought against it. That sorrowing old face in the mirror. It was gone now, but somehow I fancied it being there still, when I looked, but overlaid, as it were, with my own. Seemed to give me no choice. I'm tired, tired, sister, I said slowly. The fitting has been long, and, and... 
"'My poor little mademoiselle!' she exclaimed. "'Let me get you something.' "'No, no, thank you. I want only to rest. If I could lie down a minute,' I added shamefacedly. "'Ah, me! The fun I used to get out of playing the subject for my story, of hedging him in and leading him on, of laying demure traps and slyly pushing him into them.' "'So you shall, child. Come this way.' She caught up my own gown and led me out into the hall. "'To your own room?' I cried. "'How nice!' N "'No, I was taking you to a little fitting-room we don't use just now, but—' "'Oh, please, Sister Euphrosine,' I begged softly, slipping my hand into hers and pressing it appealingly. "'Please!' I'd just love to lie down there for a minute in the sweet, peaceful place your room must be. She stopped to look at me. I wonder, she said slowly, if you know how charming it is to an old woman who has never been a mother to have a young thing like you seem fond of her. The good God knew best when he made me a nun. If I had been a mother, he knew well it would have been such a worldly, idolizing mother. You, you will let me? She nodded. Dear little mademoiselle, she said, turning with me off the main corridor. You have a way to wheedle this sternest sort of creature. How much more a self-indulgent woman who has never outgrown her passion for making dolls' dresses. Tell me, does everybody grant you everything you wish? Do you always have your way? Or is it only to weak-minded old nuns that you are irresistible, you winning little thing? Is this to be my punishment, I wonder? To deserve to be hanged at the yard-arm whenever I earn the thing the whole of me longs for? I... I think... I began slowly, confused and miserable. I'm better. It isn't necessary for me to rest. Let me go home, dear sister. She shook her head and playfully pulled me along. On the threshold of a simple little room she paused a moment, after unlocking the door. "'Aye, my dear,' she said softly, as though in prayer, "'keep your heart pure and true and pitiful. If ever such gifts as you have be put to ignoble uses. But I must hurry away. Lie down, child, till you feel quite rested. This is not really my own cell, you understand.' I only occupy it during the season when we are very busy, and it is not fitting that I should carry the hurry of worldly things into the peace of the convent. So here is my office. Here I keep my accounts. Here I sleep, so that the discipline of the convent may not be disarranged. So rest. She helped me out of my finery and went off, carrying it over her arm. And I stood there after the door had clicked behind her, not moving, not thinking, I knew so well the race was run. There on the open desk before me lay the nun dressmaker's account book, her sheaf of bills, her memorandum of engagements, a few samples of silks and chiffons, all the incongruous vanities of her profession, and all incongruously, methodically, systematically arranged. It fascinated me, that desk. There it was, the end of my struggles. If the fairy who grants wishes had fallen out of the sky and lighted in that spotless saint's spotless little room, she might have offered me anything in the world, 
but if she had left out the letter that must be inside that desk, I'd have refused it all. Truly, I don't know how I got my hands on it at last. There must be a magnetism in the thing you want when you want it hard enough. And, oh, I wanted this. Even while I was glancing over the first part of it, I saw, not the passionate, revengeful words before me, but just Rhoda Massey dancing off with it. I saw myself back again at the office, sitting in a lordly fashion at Bowman's desk, and running that bully-busy old local room. I saw endless opportunities for bedazzling and enraging and fascinating a certain red-moustached news editor, and bringing him repentant to the feet of a city editor who was only waiting for his formal capitulation to surrender herself humbly, abjectly, joyously. But it all left me when I turned the half-sheet and read the words on the back. There it was. There it was. And not one word, Nanot, to anyone about the pistol. If anyone should have happened to see you going into Mr. L.'s room, remember it was for my photograph, the big one that was on his desk. Remember. I'll be ready to testify that way, too. Be sure, Nanot. I count on you. E.L. That settled it. I could think of only one thing now. If I'd had all my clothes on, I'd have been off with it in that instant. But I didn't dare wait to get dressed. Something, anything, might happen. In a moment I had it. I propped the sheet of blue paper up against Sister Euphrosine's account book, and there, with the clear light from the big window shining square upon it, I clicked my camera at it. The best and biggest lens in the art room shall enlarge it for you, Rhoda, I gabbled to myself as I hurried into my things, and with the big copy of it. But see here, you'd better take another shot at it to make sure. In a jiffy, I grabbed the Kodak. Horror! There wasn't a film in it. There hadn't been any. I might as well have tried to take a picture with the empty button box in which Sister Euphrosine's pens lay. Oh, oh! Fancy the misery of me! Fancy the idiocy of me! I had left the roll of films in the fitting-room that day I'd explained the mechanism of the box a sister you foreseen, and had never thought of them once since. I lost my head then and decided to do a half-dozen things in as many seconds, but my fingers were thick and unsteady. I was so rattled, I was so nervous, I was so miserable. When I flew for the door and out into the hall, I had ceased to care whether anybody saw me half-dressed or not. I made for the fitting-room to get my films and stood stock-still in the hall as I reached the door. Mrs. Evelyn Lowenthal, blonde, tall, stately, and heavily veiled, was standing there opposite me. She herself had come for the letter. For a second the sight of her seemed to petrify me. Then I turned and ran for all I was worth back to Sister Euphrosine's room. No time now to be squeamish about methods. I would grab that paper and, half-dressed as I was, jump out of the window with it and make for the cars. Yes, I would have. I swear I would, but... But the lock had caught when I slammed the door behind me, and I flung myself desperately at it, only to come bang up against its unyielding, stubborn surface. It was just then that Sister Euphrosine came up. I knew what she had come for all right, and the thought set me frantic. Don't give it to her. Don't give it to her, I begged. 
Oh, please, I'll explain to you, I'll explain it all, but trust me, won't you? Trust you, dear little mademoiselle, she exclaimed, amazed at the sight of me there clinging like a little idiot to the door as though I could keep her from entering. She put the key in the lock and opened it for us both. Come in and tell me what is the matter, child. Of course I trust. Her eye fell upon the desk. There, propped up against the account book, the white north light falling full upon it was the letter just as I had left it. Caught? Of course I was, but do you suppose I cared? I intended to tell her the whole thing anyway, but she wouldn't listen to me after that. With a look of horror and a hand lifted as though to shield herself from the sight of me, she caught up the letter and hurried from the room. Clapping on my hat, I hurried after her blindly, fastening on my collar and tie as I went. What did I expect? Nothing, nothing. But I saw her give the paper to Mrs. Lowenthal, who glanced over it with a queer expression on her lips before shutting it with a click inside the satchel that swung from her wrist. If she had made a motion to destroy it, I think I could have flung myself upon her and torn it from her. I couldn't? That shows how little you know Rhoda Massey. But you see, she didn't. With a nod, she swept across the hall and out the open door, and I followed. Sister Euphrosine must have called after me, but I was deaf, blind, to everything but one. I couldn't let go. What's the difference between Rhoda of the news and the bulldog I named after her? Is a riddle that pert, facetious Frank McGowan loves to spring, in my presence, too, on journalists who have too strong a sense of dignity and perhaps a bit of a crush on me. And when, with a shocked stare, said journalists had to give it up, Frankie would murmur gently, Well, the four-footed Rhoda will give up after a time. As I ran a step or two to catch up with Mrs. Lowenthal, I thought of Frankie's wretched little riddle. But it didn't amuse me any more. It terrified me. Perhaps I was holding on hopelessly. Perhaps it was only instinct, not reason at all, that kept me doggedly on the track. But anyway, I had given the last handicap to fate. Hereafter, we'd played this game of the letter for every point in it. Pardon me, I gasped as I caught up to her. Are you going into town? So am I. Sister Euphrosine has sent me in to match some trimming, and she says I'm to show you the shortcut over the hill. I said it lightly, hurrying on beside her, but my heart was beating so I could hardly get my breath. Thank you, she said, falling into step with me. I took the wrong car coming out and had to walk quite a stretch. Are there any open cars on this line? I've been indoors all forenoon at, with, with many people. I've had a headache. I'd like to ride outside. I nodded, but inside of me I was thinking. Many people, many people. How could a woman whose name was on everybody's tongue be with many people unless? Lothal's preliminary examination. It came to me in a second. She had had to testify there, and she hated her stepson. She... Perhaps, said Mrs. Lowenthal, her eyes on the overloaded car that came plunging up toward us just then. We'd better wait for another. I shook my head. I couldn't speak, for, for just then it came to me. And it needed just such a car, the reckless thing, the only thing left to me. 
A man got off and let us climb up. She wanted to stay outside, but the platform of the dummy was too crowded, so we went in. There was a bit more room here, but we had to hang on straps, both of us, while the car whizzed on again. The conductor reached me first. I gave him a dollar purposely, letting go the strap to open my purse, and stood balancing and swaying there while deliberately I put back the change in my purse. Oh, very deliberately, you may be sure, and bumping stupidly against Mrs. Lowenthal, as she, in her turn, let go the strap and prepared to pay her fare. She never paid it, though. That is, I never saw her pay it. For the car gave a lurch just then, and with a squawk, I threw out my hand, plunging bulkily forward, and knocking satchel and all out of Mrs. Lowenthal's fingers. Do you know what I felt down there on the floor of the car, with the conductor in the doorway vainly trying to get me to my feet, with Mrs. Lowenthal exclaiming and all the passengers standing now or stooping to pick up the scattered contents of her bag? It wasn't triumph. No, though I had a page of blue paper covered desperately with my sprawled right hand. And it wasn't the pain in my wrist, bleeding and strained and agonizingly hot. No, it was disgust. This wasn't the guile of the journalist. It was the act of a thug. And a thug had taught it to me. I deserve San Quentin for it. Remember quick-fingered Peter's last break into jail? You don't? Well, read the news. Miss Massey's special article on the subject. Just the same, I wasn't proud of it. Not Rhoda. But, oh, I was glad. Glad and savagely unrepentant. How awfully stupid of me! I'm so sorry! I exclaimed, looking tearfully up at Mrs. Lowenthal from under the smashed straw of my hat. Oh, they were genuine tears, all right. I was trying to close my hand on that paper and the slightest motion stung me as though a million needles were pricking it. But she wasn't paying any attention to me, nor did she seem to see the outstretched hands that held out the various articles picked up on the floor. "'There's a paper,' she said breathlessly to the conductor. "'A half-page of blue note-paper. Find it. I must have it.' That was just how I felt. I, too, must have it. I had nearly broken my wrist to get it and indeed I virtually had it. It lay under my sprawled and suffering hand, but try as I would in the quick second that I lay there, I could not close my bleeding fingers upon it. No, no, I cried to the conductor, tears of agony rolling down my cheeks. Let me lie here a minute. I, I'm hurt. And turning, I put my other hand over that poor crippled one, lifted the fingers of it as though each was a dead weight, and, and, and the wind, the capricious, cruel wind, blew a little eddy about the open door, caught the paper away from my tortured fingers, and I fell back nearly fainting. "'There! There it goes!' cried the conductor. "'Should I stop the car, madame?' he asked Mrs. Lowenthal. "'Do you want to get off?' "'Yes, yes, quick!' she cried, and he gave the bell a sharp clang that stopped us on the slant of a steep hill. That meant me. Of course it did, I knew that. But for a second I couldn't get to my feet. Oh, to have to begin all over again. It was the rustle of Mrs. Lowenthal's silk ruffles that roused me. She swished swiftly past me as I lay there propped up beside the door, 
and gritting my teeth i started to rise and follow her but i didn't get up i fell back staring with popping eyes out toward the dummy at what merely at a bit of blue paper playing like a leaf in the afternoon breeze about the motorman's feet the others were standing or sitting they couldn't see it but from where i lay in the minute it took for mrs lowenthal to hurry off and the car to bound forward up the hill I could watch the gay, imprisoned bit of blue flutter there, and just be content to smile wistfully at it. "'She's fainting!' cried an old woman opposite. N "'No, I'm not,' I said quickly. "'But I do want more air.' I got it. Out on the dummy with the concerned conductor propping me up, asking my name and address, and beseeching me to say it wasn't his fault, I got it. All I had to do was to drop my handkerchief. After such a clumsy accident, it wouldn't have surprised that wretched conductor if I'd fallen to pieces at his feet, and insist upon picking it up myself. "'I'm Rhoda Massey,' I said to the police court bailiff when I had struggled my way through the crowd in the corridor. "'Yes,' he said stolidly, looking cynically at my bedraggled hat and swollen tear-stained face but not budging an inch from his stand in front of the door. And this is the third time today that same dodge has been tried on me. What did Rhoda Massey be coming in at the end of the examination for? At the end? I cried. Oh, call Brockington out, do. And he did, strange to say. But why not come in yourself? Brockington urged when I stammered a word or two and jammed the bit of paper into his hands. It would be... I, I can't, Mr. Brockington. I'm ashamed. He looked down at the disheveled thing I was. To meet Grandma Lowenthal, I mumbled. He stared. Then quickly he dropped his head and over his glasses he looked at me. Oh, I've seen a look of admiration in old Brockington's eyes before. In court, after I'd done a good piece of work on a trial, a character sketch with any subtlety, or or when I had put on a gown that fitted, that spoke of the feminine. But attorney Alexander Brockington had never looked at me like that. And, oh, Rhoda Massey just loves to be looked at that way. With surprise, but with gratification, with admiration, perhaps, but, oh, with esteem and kindly, kindly regard. He caught my hand in his as he grasped the hand of young Hewlett, his partner, when they'd fought through the long Dilworth case and won. It was a grateful, cordial grasp, but it caught my right hand, and the agony of the pressure, as well as the excitement, I suppose, and the suspense and the blessed relief of it all, sent something quivering into my knees, and made the crowded, foul-aired courtroom swim before me. But I couldn't fall down then. There was too much to see. And I can see Brockington now. I can see this very minute the delicious deliberation with which— when he got back to his place between young Lothal and Grandma Lowenthal, he put on his glasses and prepared to speak. The whole courtroom was in a state of suspense, but he looked around gravely to invite the district attorney's attention, as though even in that supreme moment the ethics of legal courtesy must be observed. And then I heard him, oh, with the most beautiful aplomb begin. It appears, Your Honor... End of chapter 11